spent the whole hour talking about where our King James Bible comes from, what the translators do, how they do it, um, and just all that. So it was a good time. Now today we're going to kind of pick up from there and, and get into this critical text that Steve mentioned. Um, and I'll get I'll talk more about that in a second. So, all right, candy bars. So I thought first. I know. I'll tell you, man. I folded. I'm gonna have to go back to the big. Then there's Chris, man. Right in time for candy bars. The answer is <laughs> That is the answer. <laughs> that is the answer. Right. Yeah. Well, actually, that's coming up. Oh, you got, oh, yeah, front row. All right, we're a Chris man. Here you go, dude. Uh, right off the bat there. Yeah. All right. So, manuscript. Edit. Last week we talked about the King James Bible. These are like. I thought I'm gonna see if anybody was listening last week. Does anyone remember how old was King James when he took the throne of England? It's like 13 13 months, months, wasn't it? Okay, who said 13 months? That's good. That's not right, but it's good. (laughs) There's candy bars for everybody. (laughs) All right, that's that's good because uh, that's how old he was when he became king of... Uh, All right, let me go on. So he was he was 37. He was 37 years old when he became king of England. So he's a wise guy. He's a he's a made man and all that kind of stuff. So he's 37 years old. But this is where the 13 months comes in. Before he was king of England, he was another king. Scotland. Everybody had that one, so I. Well, I've seen Sarah first. There you go, Sarah. He was king of Scotland. At 13 months old, his mom was such a bad queen that they booted her and they put the baby on the throne, which was King James. He had a superior education. By the time he's 37, he gets on the throne of England and he's, he's ready for it. God had him ready. All right, there's another hard one. Everybody should know this like that. Because Brian will mention this every once in a while. How many translators were on the translation committee for our King James Bible? That's very close. We're getting close. That's close. 47. 47 guys. And remember in your handout last week, I listed all of them. You know, just like I said, I typed them out just for myself because I just, I really appreciate these guys. Um, and actually, Pam had a good question. Pam Anderson, she asked if they were paid. And that's something I'd never really thought of or run across. So I did some research this week. And, you know, I got all these books on these guys. They were not paid to translate our Bible. Oh. They did it out of their own you know, wow. generosity. For seven years. Well, that's the next question. Oh. Or did I answer that? No, not yet. All right. So there were 47 translators. Remember the, the worksheet last week. There was 47 of them. And they were divided up into six companies. So I'll just give you the answer. Yeah. Right. All right. Well, how many cities were involved? They, they Remember how they were all in different cities? Does anyone remember how many? Four is close. There's three. So I should have brought a full size for anyone that can name the three. But... Um, 
How many years did it take? We've already established it took seven years to translate our King James Bible. So, seven years. Here's the overview we went through last week. There were 47 translators, six companies, uh, three cities. They had rules. We covered that last week. The three cities were just outside of London. They all divided up and uh, they did their work. They translated their piece. They were all assigned different chunks of the Bible. They would, they would translate their chunk and send it to the next city and some people would review it and it did that for seven years. And then they read it out loud in the hall and blessed it and that's where we got our Bible. So... Um, I put this together. I, I didn't put it on your handout, but I just thought I would make this super, super simple about our King James Bible. Where did it come from? And this goes back to our six-week study. In the very beginning, we had all these Greek texts that were here in Asia Minor. The Byzantine Empire kept them preserved for us. And they're called the majority texts because there's like 6,000 of these guys, these texts, and they all agree, and that's where we get our Bible. Now, this was our first hero, Erasmus, took those Greek texts and made a, a New Testament out of those Greek texts, and we call that the Texas Receptus that we, we all know and love. We hear that all the time. So that's how our New Testament came to the King James translators. They used Erasmus's text to translate our New Testament. The Old Testament, and it's kind of chewed off there, but that was the Masoretic text from the Masoretes in, in uh, Israel that uh, preserved the text meticulously. And that's what uh, the King James translators chose for the Old Testament. So they, they married these two. We got our, our Bible and we got the KJV. That's the output. That's what we covered last week. Uh, let's see if I picked up. We went through the English Bibles up to the King James. I'm going to... Uh, these are about King James. Uh, the Hampton Court. This was the um, the decree that... You remember the Puritans. When he came on the throne, the Puritans, you know, they were outside the castle protesting all the problems in England. So King James says, okay, let's get a new Bible to make everybody happy. You know, that's where it came from. We talked about that last week. Uh, we talked about how the Jesuits started raising their head uh, around this time. They tried to kill King James with the gunpowder plot, uh, which is a, it's an interesting story in itself, how the Jesuits tried to thwart. They tried to stop the King James Bible by violence, is what they tried to do in, the, in 1604. Well, now they're trying to do it through other means, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, the King James AV was first printed in 1611. This is all just kind of review. There were, there are, remember, seven editions. A lot of, a lot of the critics will, will say, well, you believe the King James Bible, but which one? Because there were seven different editions, and I showed you last week how that was typos and printing errors that they were cleaning up. To end up with the 1769 edition is what we use today. Uh, that's kind of a quick timeline of everything I just said. I think this was in the handout last week, so I didn't put it in this week. And this is where we left off. Is there any questions over any of that, how we got to this point, how we got our King James Bible? All right. And, you know, the Bible was 1769, the King James 
rolls off and that's what, that's what we have. So if you were to go to a bookstore in the early 1800s, there would be two books on the shelves, basically. There would be the King James 1769 edition and there would be the Dewey Reams, which is the Catholic Church's English Bible that came out in 1580. There would be the two Bibles and that's kind of the way things were for really 100 years, 150 years. And that's when this critical text idea come in. A guy named Griesbach brought it in. He was a German rationalist. Uh, like Steve said, he doubted the authenticity of the Bible, so he started being very critical of where it really came from, and he developed a whole system uh, how to criticize the text. Uh, he was a big scholar, everybody liked him. So that kind of started the critical text movement. And that's where things get really wild, is from the late 1700s till today. And, and everything that I'm going to kind of show you and teach you today, you've, a lot of you have probably already heard this. Uh, it's, it, it's very well documented, everything I'm going to go through. It's very well documented, but it's also very well hidden. You've got to really look for it because, you know, the scholarship doesn't want us knowing things I'm going to show you today. Um, and they do a really good job making it difficult to find. So you got to do a lot of research, a lot of reading. So it gets really, it's a bumpy road today. But I'm going to try to make it simple. We're just we're in a John boat, just paddling down a creek. Alright, so King James comes out, everything is fine up until around 1830. And this is a timeline of kind of the critical text movement and what goes on. Um, this might be boring for us, and, and, and we don't have to really understand the details, but uh, as we get toward the end, I'll try to just summarize the, the important things that we really need to know. Just as important to know the King James Bible and where it comes from, it's, it's really important that believers like us that are KJV folks understand the modern corruptions that are out there, where they came from, uh, who created them, what they're, what's inside them, what's the, who's behind all of it, and that kind of stuff. It's really important to know that, because we are definitely a minority. Uh, I mean, like Steve mentioned, he has KJV discussions with people, and hardly nobody believes the way we believe anymore. So it's, it's good to know what you believe. So this is kind of the timeline, and uh, we're going to go through just quickly each one of these, but this uh, Oxford movement starts in the 30s. Count von Tischendorf shows up and makes a big discovery we'll talk about, and uh, Codex Vaticanus is available. These two guys, Westcott and Hort, show up in the 60s. Um, then the Oxford movement gets a new Bible to be released. So we'll, we'll talk about each one of these briefly. The Oxford Movement, what is it? All right. This is, it's, it's another Jesuit, oh man, I forgot my big map, because this is on my big timeline. The Oxford Movement, you know, we've all heard of the Reformation, you know, that's where uh, Martin Luther started it, and, and we're breaking away from the Roman Catholic Church, want to reform it, protest it. This is the opposite. This is a Jesuit plan hatched up by some of these cardinals 
to bring the Church of England back under Roman Catholic control. Oh. Remember how you know I had King Henry VIII and I had the little red lines and yeah. he cut the lines. He broke, away. he broke away from the Catholic Church. He started the Church of England. The Jesuits now, through peaceful means, are trying to bring the Church of England and all the Protestants back under the Roman Catholic control. Uh, and they're pretty successful. I mean, there were thousands of priests and monasteries that get fired up um, because of their efforts. And I think on your handout, I don't have a handout, but I think I list all these things. Yeah, yeah, I put, I put a summary of each one of these, these uh, key events that are happening. So that's the first one, the Oxford Movement. So these guys are gaining steam. They've got a lot of friends in high places uh, that keep the ball rolling to bring people back under the Catholic Church. Uh, one of them, one of their buddies, is, is this guy named Count von Tischendorf. You may have heard of him. He, he makes the famous discovery of the Codex Sinaiticus. That is a... Let me do a slide on it. But that is a... Um, it's a Greek text from Alexandria, Egypt. And we talked about those guys and how they're heretics. Back to origin. He, actually, here's the story. It's really a funny story. I mean, everything about this guy is suspect. He's buddies with uh, the Vatican. He spends a year at the Vatican he, um, doing stuff. He leaves the Vatican and goes straight to St. Catherine's Monastery in Egypt and happens to find, oh look, here's a Greek New Testament, I mean it was fragments, and Old Testament. This, here's a Greek text dating back to like 350 AD. So this is the oldest that we've ever seen, so this must be the most accurate, because it's the oldest. And uh, he, he asked the monks, can I take this important document? I got people that want to see it, and they said no. So he steals it. Uh, and it makes him mad. Well, he, he comes back later and trying to buy it, and, you know, and he steals more of it, and he ends up selling it to the Russian Tsar. But his whole story is uh, suspect, and even today we're not sure if he really just discovered it or if the Vatican gave it to him, and it's just all a ruse. Nevertheless, this guy shows up in 1844 with supposedly the oldest Greek manuscripts out of Alexandria, Egypt. We got that. That's Tischendorf. He's a, he's a shyster. Uh, the, the Codex Sinaiticus, and, and the reason we're going through this is the Sinaiticus and the and Codex Vaticanus are two of the primary texts that have made their way into all the modern Bibles because these things are supposedly so old and so accurate that modern scholarship uses these, and we'll, we'll get into more of that, but that's, that's why we're covering this. So the old Sinaiticus, uh, you know, it's of Egyptian origin, uh, it's got fragments of all, of all these books. It doesn't, it's not complete at all. So they've got to fill in the blanks when they do the translations. Um, anyway, like I said, the whole story is shrouded in secrecy. But that's the Codex Sinaiticus. Kevin? Wasn't the very first ones also written in Latin, so most of the people couldn't even read it anyway? Uh, that came a little later. They were all originally Greek, uh, yeah. but Latin came pretty early. Mm -hmm. All right, so that's uh, all right. Next, Vaticanus. Here's another one. This is this is also a strange one. 
I uh, won't get into all the history, but it's also another uh, text out of Alexandria, Egypt. It's kept at the Vatican. Nobody can see it. Every once in a while, they'll allow someone to take a look at it. Uh, well, they allowed, uh, in the 1800s, they allowed Tischendorf to look at it, and he made copies of it. Uh, actually, now we can see it. It's online. Uh, we can see copies of it. Uh, they let their buddies Westcott and Hort take a look at it. So now Tischendorf, Westcott, and Hort can all look at this Vaticanus, which is also another incomplete Greek text, claiming to be early, like from 400 AD, I think's where it's from. Uh, but what's interesting is the Vaticanus disagrees with Sinaiticus, like all, all over the place. They don't even agree between themselves, but they still they're touted as more reliable because they are older. They're pretty old. Um, yeah, there's even notes in the margins about how it's a poor translation, even the people that copied it. And um, I think I mentioned this when we, when we did Erasmus. When Erasmus, you know, our hero, takes the Byzantine Greek text, there's letters that we have that he wrote to his friends, and he actually talks about how he rejects this text because it's so inaccurate. So, so that's why we've got the good stuff. So he's, he's still our hero. Alright, and remember on the Greek text, uh, we had these families, we've, we've seen this slide many times. You know, the Byzantine texts were all preserved in, in Asia Minor here, the Alexandria texts were down in Egypt. And that's where the, the, the Sinaiticus and Vaticanus are part of the Alexandrian text. You know, we've, we've covered that slide quite a bit. And this is the majority text. You know, I did the baseball game analogy, all 6,000 of these texts, they agree. These guys don't agree with that. They don't even agree between each other. So that's just, I don't know why people would go with that. They do. Uh, Erasmus's work becomes known as the Textus Receptus. We kind of talked about that. He collected all the Byzantine. So now we have this added. These two fellas, Westcott and Hort, they hated the Textus Receptus. And we'll, we'll talk about them in a second. They, we can spend hours on these guys. They hated the Textus Receptus, so they purposely used these Alexandrian texts. And out of the Alexandrian text comes all of our corrupt Bibles. We'll get, we'll get there in a second. Alright, um, so that takes us up to here. Uh, okay, so then all this is going on in the 1800s. You know, you got the Oxford movement pushing people back to Catholic stuff. You've got Tischendorf and, and Westcott and Hort studying all these older texts. And they're able to convince the Church of England that now that we have more reliable texts, we need a new Bible. And that's, that's where the bumpy road starts, is with the 1870 commission. Uh, they, they commissioned these two guys, Westcott and Hort. And I think we've all heard of these guys. They commissioned Westcott and Hort to head up this Bible committee that's going to make a new translation using better text. And, and like I say, they're best buds with all the, uh, the key guys of the time. The guys of the Oxford Movement, Tischendorf, and they're all working together on this. Um, the translation committee is well documented. These guys, half these guys are heretics. They don't believe the Bible's even true. They're all friends of Westcott and Hort. And they're doing this in England, and they want to also create a, a Bible for the Americans. 
And you guys have probably heard of Philip Schaff. He's he's like church history guy. He's wrote volumes on church history. He headed up the American side of this effort to create a new Bible. Uh, he's really not a hero. He's kind of a not a good guy himself. But anyway, and they were given the same rules that the King James translators were given. They weren't supposed to monkey around with the text of the AV. But that's exactly what they did. And they, they had been planning this for a long time. But they wanted to replace the Textus Receptus and they wanted to get rid of the King James authorized version and insert their own ideas and text. So they didn't follow the rules, um, which is to be expected of these guys. Um, okay, Westcott and Hoare. I'm gonna spend a few minutes on here. These guys, did not believe anything uh, that, like we do. And the way I know that, well, the way we all know it, um, okay, that's just a thing. All right. Back in the 1800s, whenever people died, like Charles Darwin or anybody famous, uh, the family would want to get rich, I don't know, and they would, they, when the person died, they would uh, take all the letters on their desk and publish them. So here's the letters from Charles Darwin or, you know, anyone else, uh, Francis Bacon or someone. Well, they did the same with Westcott and Hort. Their, their sons published the letters of Westcott and Hort. And, uh, you know, I read them. It's, it's an extremely dry, boring read. A lot of it is... You know, I went to Aunt Betty's and she had chicken and it was good and it was all that kind of stuff. But within that are gold mines to insight into the letters these guys are writing to each other. And I just wanted to read a few of them that I found. Like in, uh, in, uh, in, in Westcott's book, he's writing to Hort. And this is one of the many passages. I had to just pick a few because I don't want to spend a whole hour on this. But He's talking about an article that he read uh, that talks about the fall of Adam and, and Adam and Eve and all that kind of stuff. And here's what Westcott actually wrote to Ford. He says, The authors of the article doubtless assume the strictly historical character of the account of the fall in Genesis. This assumption is now, in my belief, no longer reasonable. But the early chapters of Genesis remain a divinely appointed parable or apologue, setting forth important practical rules, but they lie outside our present ken, our knowledge. So he has many paragraphs where he doesn't believe that the Genesis, here's another, another one I found. He, Westcott's writing to Hort. No one now, I suppose, holds that the first three chapters of Genesis, for example, give a literal history. I could never understand how anyone reading them with open eyes could think they did. This guy didn't even believe Genesis. Uh, that's just one. Fort's even worse. Uh, let me find here. Uh, He's talking about the, the original fall again. Uh, talking about a friend of theirs. Uh, talking about your friend's shield. Hort says, I am inclined to think that no such state as Eden, I mean the popular notion, ever existed, and that Adam's fall in no degree differed from the fall of each of us. So he, he doesn't believe the fall. He doesn't believe in Eden. Um, I have one here where he even talks about the Texas Receptus. 
Uh, oh yeah, I had no. This is Horde. He says I had no idea that the last few weeks of the importance of our text, having read so little of the Greek Testament and dragged on with the villainous Textus Receptus. Uh, to think that the vile Textus Receptus is leaning on late manuscripts, it is a blessing. They're early ones. Uh, he goes on. Oh, another one. When they, they, these guys believed in ghosts and communicating with ghosts, and they they created the uh, their own temporary name is they they created the Ghostly Guild, which is a uh, it's a little association, a little club they were both members of, along with some of those translators of the 1881 Bible. They were members of the Ghostly Guild that would uh, investigate any kind of paranormal stuff, and they they really believed in you know in real ghosts, and they thought it was very interesting. Uh, they were into Mary worship. Yeah, I've been persuaded for many years that Mary worship and Jesus worship have very much in common with their causes and their results. Uh, you know, most of their friends were Catholics. Uh, this, these books are just full. I don't have time to read more, but they're full of these ideas that these guys believed. That they, they didn't like the Texas Receptus. Uh, they didn't believe that Jesus was really God. Uh, didn't believe in really heaven, hell, or Satan. They were they're very racist. I mean, the N-word is, is in here quite a bit. They, they thought very little of, of them. Uh, they hated the American democracy. They make fun of the Americans several times in here, and even with race. Uh, they were talking to ghosts all the time. Oh, they loved Darwin. This is interesting. When you're reading these guys, uh, Darwin's Origin of the Species came out, I think in 1850 or so, and these guys loved it, supported it, and they encouraged, a lot of these letters are writing their other friends, you got to read Darwin, his uh, theory on the evolution is, is unanswerable, I mean it's just awesome, that he's finally figured it out. So they were, they were big Darwin supporters. Um, they did believe a lot of that. This is Roman Catholic Church doctrine. They believed in salvation by baptism, uh, Mariology. They, they, they just all of those things. Uh, they were down with. So these are the guys that wanted to create a new Greek Bible, or new actually English Bible, even, and replace our Bible. I would not want to read anything these guys put together. But unfortunately, in churches all across America this morning, people are opening up their Bibles that were started by guys like this. So it's really a shame. So that was in the 1800s. Um, what were those Greek texts called? Um, it was. It was. No, that's coming up. They're, they're, it's a, like a Novum Testamente Nuo. Nuo. It's it's a Greek name. I don't know, but but what they did actually, I don't know if I actually pointed out here. In the 1860s or so, after Tischendorf found the Sinaiticus and, and when they were given permission to see the Vaticanus, Westcott and Hoare started working on a secret Greek trans translation. Hey, you drink. They started working on this secret Greek translation, but they didn't want anybody to know about it. And they, they talk about it in the book. No one should know what we're doing here because they'll call us heretics. Uh, they actually say that. Um, so they were they were working on that Greek text behind the scenes. So then, whenever they got the phone call, let's create a new Bible, but don't monkey, don't change the authorized version. They took their Greek text that they had in their desk drawer and introduced it to the translation committee 
we're going to use this instead of the Textus Receptus. So that's why when the English version came out, which it took them 10 years to complete, there were thousands of changes in the new, that's a, this is the first Bible that comes, this is the, the next English Bible that comes out after the 1611 KJV. It's the 1881 RSV in England. Uh, and that is based on Westcott and Hort's corrupt Greek text, which is from the Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. It's coming. It's, it's good. Um, and in the American side, Philip Schaff put this guy out because the Americans were a, a few years behind. They put out the ASV based on Westcott and Horst. Now, Westcott and Horst took a lot of heat. There was a guy, I, I don't cover him in here, but I've got his books and I've, I've read several of his books. He is, he's a guy named Dean Burgeon. I don't know if you've ever heard of Dean Burgeon, but Dean Burgeon was the Peter Ruckman of the 1880s. And uh, he was a scholar, he was brilliant, he was a TR guy. And uh, he took these guys to task and said, you guys are idiots and you, you have translated the wrong Greek and you've translated it incorrectly. And he really gave them a lot of, a lot of heat, Westcott and Hort. Uh, so because of that, this other guy shows up, another German rationalist, a guy named Eberhard Nestle. So he kind of pulls a fast one, Nestle does. He's not really a Bible believer, he's more of a scholar, a linguist. You know, doesn't believe the Bible's true, doesn't believe anything about it. But he took Westcott and Hort's corrupt Greek text and renamed it. It's the Nestle. I mean, everybody loves Nestle. So it's now it's the Nestle Greek text. Um, he pushed it all through England, and the very first ship to fall was the British Foreign Bible Society dumped the Texas Receptus and the King James, and they start going with the Nestle. Greek New Testament. So that's when the things start going south. They, they teach that in colleges now. Yes, yeah, so that's the, I think the next slide. Uh, okay, this is what they teach, like Steve's saying. Nestle, uh, Nestle's was corrupt, and it, it went along fine, but this dude shows up in the 50s, and he takes Nestle's corrupt text further uh, corrupts it more himself. He's a, he's a very well-known scholar. Kurt Allen is his name. He just died a few years ago. Uh, big buddies with the Pope. He's the ecumenical guy. I mean, he's real close to the Pope. He takes uh, Nestle's corrupt text and kind of adds his own perversions because he also doesn't believe the Bible. And this becomes the de facto standard text that's taught in every theological seminary in, in America, probably the world. It's the, Nest, the, the Nestle Allen Greek text. They're up to version 29 now, because they revise it every few years. If you open any counterfeit Bible, you'll see this, Nestle Allen, which is nothing more than the West Cotton Hort rewashed. Nestle Allen. It was used by Wycliffe. He's, he's friends with all these guys that really got things started. You know, Wycliffe translators, the SILs, the, the translators, that they translate all over the world. Um, Kurt Allen uh, is kind of the head of the, the Bible societies. Um, 
the, the United Bible Society has has management and control over all these different worldwide Bible societies. So all of these guys are using the Nestle Allen corrupt Greek text now to do their translation. Um, United Bible Society 5th edition is, is what they're up to now the, of the Nestle Greek text. Uh, it's been approved by Pope. Pope Francis a few years ago uh, approves it and that's what the Catholics use now to to bring things together. You know, we used to have different Bible lines. We had the Jerome's Latin Vulgate, and then we had, you know, the good stuff out of Byzantine, and, and now things have come together into this new Nestle Allen text. This is a picture I found that's awesome. The United Bible Society in the 60s and 70s, this is their editor committee, the guys that are cranking out these Bibles. There's Kurt, and Bruce Metzger is another one that's just as bad. I just I don't have time to go through them, but uh, and this guy here, Will Green. These guys are just scribes. This guy here, Carlos Martini. I've read whole books on this guy. This guy was another. He was a Jesuit implant into the United Bible Societies to bring their translation to make it Catholic friendly. He's a member of the Jesuits. He's got he's black. He's a little collar and all that. He was almost Pope in the 80s, but they went to someone else. He's very high at the Vatican, he's very high with the United Bible Societies, and he helps steer this whole thing to be pro-Catholic. So all these versions coming out. I think that's that's cool. Alright, our next our next guy that's responsible for where we're at. This guy is probably the most well-known unknown guy. His his fingerprints, Genida, his fingerprints are, are on every counterfeit Bible in the shelves. What? So. Oh man, we gotta have you do it, huh? Yeah, let me, let me get it going here, current slide. Yeah, alright. Um, this guy is behind the scenes, you wouldn't really know he's there. But here's what he did. In 1964, he came out with a theory called dynamic equivalence. This is a big one. This is huge. Um, and this is the, the theory that instead of doing literal translations, like instead of reading you know, the Greek text and saying, okay, what's this mean, and putting it into English, like pretty much word for word, he came up with the idea, let's just transfer thought or meaning. Uh, read a passage, what's it say, write it down in English. Well, it depends on who's doing the writing. Your English is going to differ. And that's what we have now, is because anybody can grab a Nestle Allen Greek text, read it, and come up with their own translation, their own meaning. They can read a passage in anywhere and just come up with their own meaning. And that's what's going on. That's why we have so many Bibles. Um, you know, I got this... Some, some people use soda versus pop. This is stuff I got out of his documents. One of the things I think was funny is in our Bible, when it says Lamb of God, when he was translating a Bible for the Alaskan people, seals are more important than a lamb. So he would use seal of God instead of Lamb of God. And then someone doing something for India might do another animal. I mean, it's just going to be all over the place. So this dynamic equivalence really allows a translator to put their own 
prejudices and biases and, and thoughts, doctrine into the, their Bible, their version of the Bible. Does that make sense? That's why we have so many Bibles, because you've got all these translators that now have the freedom to do this. Um, instead, of word word. instead of a word for word. Yeah, we can just tell you what we think it means. It's all about money. Yes, exactly. It's very much about money. Yeah, exactly. And then Nida was another guy. Worked a lot with the Vatican. Uh, he was another kind of implant. Uh, he taught in Jesuit universities and vice versa. They're all just kind of learning this stuff from each other, creating these new Bibles. You know, that's when we start seeing in, in the 70s and stuff, these living Bibles, all these different things. NIV came out in 78, I think. So here's our four uh, guys that everybody should be aware of, or at least, at least, I guess not by name, but just Westcott and Hort did the first corruption. These guys really brought it to us today, Kurt Allen and Eugene Nida, and it really just reminds me of that verse in Second Peter that, you know, here in these last days, these false prophets privately bring in damn, damnable heresies. It's exactly what they've done. They brought in all kinds of stuff. Um, which, remember, the very first week, week one, which is like months ago now, when I showed, we went through all of these popular TV radio preachers and TV preachers and stuff, and we talked about how none of these guys believe the King James Version is the impure, impure words of God. All of these guys have been to school. They've all been studying the Nestle Allen text. They all are down with the... Uh, dynamic equivalence method of translating. Several of them have their own Bibles they push for money, like Belinda said, because now they have the freedom. Scholarship has given them the freedom to do their own translating. And don't worry about word for word. Yeah, it's terrible. I mean, these guys are uh, they're all they're our heroes. But, but they, yeah, they. Yeah, I think they think they're doing the right thing, right? I mean, they're like trying to corrupt. No, yeah, they've been. They think they're doing right. Yeah, this is sad. So there's kind of our timeline. I think I put this in your handout. I think it was in last week. 1611 comes out. Everything's fine. Jesuit Oxford movement really kicks things off when the Roman Catholic Church tries to, in a in a nonviolent way, bring people on board their agenda. Tischendorf does his discovery, Westcott and Hort do their perversion, Nestle comes along, uh, Eugene Nida takes it home with translate it however you want. Uh, now this I did put in your handout, this is, I think, yep. is this on the back? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this was just a little drawing I did to show everything I've talked about. You know, the, the top line is the true, that's our Bible line that we believe, you know, comes out of Byzantine. Erasmus is our hero. The King James translators joined the Masoretic text to get us our Bible. Meanwhile, these guys, Alexander and Hort, they like the Alexandrian text better. They're older. They put, they put forth the theory, if it's older, it's better. You know, which... If, if I go to the doctor, I'd rather him use a current 
medical book than something out of the 1600s. Yeah, you're putting leeches on me. That's right. They're using those again. Yeah, so just because it's older, it ain't better. <laughs> so these guys start the corruption. Nestle and, and Allen jump on board. They, they do like the Septuagint. We talked about that week two or three. It's, the, uh, it's an early origin perversion of the Greek text. So they, they, they get their Old Testament from the Septuagint. We get it from the Masoretic text. So they join all this stuff together. Eugene Nida puts a, puts a bow on it. And we get all these fake Bibles. Question. Yes. All the fake Bibles, is that basically the Catholics trying to push it is. us towards Catholic you know, Yes. Let's use one Bible. And that, they were, we're pretty much there. Francis is really pulling that together. We have one Bible. Yeah. You're exactly right. So yeah, so when we go to the bookstore, there are hundreds hundreds of books. And that, that's, you know, the King James is a little tiny section. Right around the bottom corner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Every, everything you can think of, that's, that's why they're there. Because translators just can do whatever they want now. Because of Eugene Knight as a dynamic equivalent. And like Belinda said, it's all about money. You know, if they can put out a new Bible every year and tell you it's just the greatest thing, then you, you know, dumb Christians are going to go out and buy it. But we don't. There it is, the money shot. So to speak. Um, all these guys, and I got thinking of this after what Pam Anderson said last week with the translator. These guys are all in it for the cash. Uh, you know, this committee here, they're all wealthy guys getting rich off of Christians buying these Bibles. And compare that to the, uh, the true line. These guys died to get us our Bible. You know, Tyndale and, and Rogers, I mean, Coverdale didn't, but, but they were all killed. And, and hiding, you know, translating in a dungeon to get us our Bible. That's that's the big difference. Um, <coughs> corruption. There's thousands of differences. You guys have heard all of this. Uh, you know, th these are just absolutely true statements. That all the all the fundamental doctrines that we hold true to are either removed or watered down in these new versions. Uh, the deity of Christ is attacked. A lot of key words removed. I went to the NIV, it's, it's published by these guys, but they've got a goofy reason why their Bible is so different. And they actually claim the dynamic equivalence and stuff. So uh, HarperCollins publishes it. They make all kinds of adult, gay, whatever, you know, just terrible books. So they may be printing, you know, Playboy one day, and the next day it's cranking out an NIV. All right, so we only got a few minutes here. Uh, any questions over any of that? That's a lot of stuff. That's how we got from 1611 to today. It does. It goes over a lot of it. It does. Yeah. Your point about our heritage was really moving about translating in dungeons and giving them. Yeah, it does. When I read my Bible, sometimes I. I I do tear up because it's really cool that where we got our Bible, people died, man. They were running in the woods, they were in dungeons to give us God's word in English. So. And the slide with the dollar signs and then the slide with the blood. Yeah. I mean, it's just like. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Yeah. Kevin. So, like, uh, the, the Antioch thing that I'm thinking of. Is yes. that where the Masoretic texts were held? Uh, kind of. That's more the Greek, the New Testament. That's in Syria. 
it's, uh, it's in here, Syria. Um, that is where, you know, after Jesus died, and then we're getting into the New Testament now, the, the God's program kind of shifted from Jerusalem to Antioch. The missionaries were sent out from there. The Greek text was really created and copied there. It became the center of the Byzantine Empire, and they preserved that Greek text for hundreds of years until around 1470-ish when Islam's pushed in from the south and that pure Greek text made it to England to Erasmus. And so now all of a sudden the English folks have access to that pure Greek text. Yeah, Yeah, Alexander's down here in Egypt. Alright, so here's what we're going to do. Also, I I was going to mention too, out in our, our track carousel out here, we've got these little tracks. They've been there for a long time. They cover everything I've just said, pretty much. I, I, it's, it's everything I've said is just well documented. It's history. I haven't made it up or nothing. Um, so if you ever want more info, it's on this little card out here. Alright, so what I thought we'd do is spend a few minutes, see if you can spot the truth in these Bible verses. So here's two. I'm going to make it easy. This first one's easy. Two verses. Callous climbers betray their very own friend. They stabbed their own grandmother in the back. Oh my goodness. Versus the vital man. I don't know how they got that. I don't know if you've heard of the Message Bible. Wow. It's really in the Bible somewhere. It is. It's in this Bible. If you you can go to to Mardell's and buy the Message. Words are in that Bible. Yeah, that's I copied it. Just made that up. No, no, I I actually went to the Message Bible and I found that verse and I'm like, oh my, I got to put that one on the slide. Oh man, that's terrible. This is in the Message Bible, word for word. But this is what people are buying today. The message is really pushed. Yeah. You know, like on Caleb and stuff. Yep. They'll be pushing this Bible. Yep. Alright, so obviously KJV is on this side. Alright, here's another one. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, cross that name, catch that devil. I can see it now at the final judgment. Thousands strutting up to me. Master, we preached the message. We bashed our demon. Our God-sponsored projects had everyone talking. Uh, a lot of times that verse there is actually left. He said, ain't. Yeah, some of them don't. Well, that's, that's another message. It's a terrible Bible, but it's really pushed pretty high. And also, they capitalized message. I thought that was interesting. Because it's, it's the message Bible. I happened to notice that. Alright, here's another one. This will get, get a little harder. So which one's true? Two. Yeah, because they left out. Yeah, see, our Bibles, Joseph, all, our Bible will always make a distinction uh, that Jesus was not his son. It, it, it's, a they, it's a doctrinal thing. doctrinal thing. They dilute who Jesus was. They don't want him to be God. He's Joseph's son. So that's just kind of a subtle one. Let's look at another one real quick. Alright, here's a couple more. A little bit harder. And uh, Linda says two. Two is, two is true or not true? True. That's right. See that? NIV just replaces God with He. He was 
He appeared in the flesh. Well, I appeared in the flesh when I was born. That could be me. I mean, it, they, they're taking his deity away subtly everywhere they can. They do that. All of them are subtle, it seems. Yeah, they're kind of subtle. Yeah, it takes a little bit of reading. I want or two, the truth. One's truth. One. Peddling. They're not corrupting. They would never admit that they're corrupting. They're peddling. Yeah, that's kind of funny. Uh, here's another one. Obviously, it's gone. It's gone. This is this is the truth. So that's the NIV. It's gone. And you know, I would mention too. I'm putting NIV and, and message and things like that. But these are true for a lots of the modern Bibles, not just the NIV. <clears throat> so anyway, it's not even there. Uh, I should have put the before and after. But the Wycliffe Bible puts it this way: for man's son. I mean, what the heck? You know, that's really different. Uh, so, like I say, they're always trying to dilute the deity of Christ. There's another one. This is an interesting one, I thought. Which one's the truth? One. Yeah, one. See, they entirely, they, they removed this whole cross-reference. If you have this ESV or an NIV or ASV or NASV or CEV, a lot of them, They'll remove these Old Testament references. So when you're studying the Bible, you have no idea this is out of, I think, Psalms 22. Stuff like that. Just, just wicked stuff. Alright, another one. Um, all the flocks. Alright, Angie says two. Yes. It's from God's blood to just the blood of His Son. He's subtly diluting who Christ was. Yeah, so in the, yeah, the New World Translation, the JWs are also on board with the Nestle Allen. Uh, and in the 50s, they did the Nestle Allen perversion to make the, the New World Translation. So it's no different. Uh, I'm going to cook through some of these. Uh, that's, this is kind of an easy one there. It's KJV. They remove on him. Uh, Man shall not live by bread alone. Uh, every word of God, you know, they, they, they forget that part. Uh, ASV does. Yeah, this is the one Angie uh, mentioned a few weeks ago. This is two together. And this this is a big one. That was probably the biggest reason for me. Because we used to use NIV and some of the others in our other church before we came here. Mm -hmm. I mean, church five years ago. But that was probably verse that convinced me that if they're trying to hide that from me, then... Yeah, well, that's cool. You know, what else are they Verse 37. Yeah, see what they did. And like I say, it's not just the NIV. It's pretty much most of the modern Bibles. They just remove that one verse that actually says you must accept Christ in your heart to get baptized, in order to be baptized. You, know, you get saved first. You don't just get dunked. Yeah, yeah. Emily, you get baptized. Yeah, Emily. Yeah, there you go. All right, so, all right, so just real quick, what's the big complaint we hear with the King James? I can't understand it. All right, can't understand it. Right, we're going to debunk that right now. This flesh reading scale is a formula that that educators use to to rank books. You guys have probably seen this before, but. Uh, they take the number of words, the sentences, they do this mathematical thing, and they end up with, you know, they, Harry Potter, Jurassic Park, all these are on this scale. KJV comes out on their scale as a fifth grade book. Whereas these other 
counterfeit Bibles are actually more complicated because of the number of words. Uh, the KJV uses less syllables and sentences to say the same thing. It's smaller words, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, that's our Old Testament. I'm going to wrap this up here. I feel like the more you read it, the more... Yeah, it gets easy ones, to understand. Yeah, the other ones aren't as easy. The more you read the King James, it just sounds correct. Yep, you know? yep. And the others don't. <laughs> yep. Alright, uh... I think that takes us through, maybe. All right, so yeah, they, that's that's pretty much it. That's all that's in there. It's, it's almost quarter after. That's where they all come from. That's why we are King James onlyists. That's why we carry the King James. People always question, why do we use the King James? Hopefully I've made it pain, obvious, painstakingly clear why we use the King James. I uh, wouldn't use anything else. <laughs> that is the, the book for me. So We were at uh, one of the booths, Jesus Christ, last, last night. Last night, yeah. <laughs> and he was trying to give me a Bible. It's free. It's free Bible. And I said, uh -huh. But it's NIV. Oh, yeah. And he said, oh, you said that. Well, and I said, I'm a King James gal. King and James woman. <laughs> and he said, Okay. I know, see? I said, well, it makes a difference. And he said, Okay. Does it? Yeah. Okay. Does it? It's so frustrating, ain't it? They don't even know what they don't know. Like you said, they think they're right. Yeah. That's what they were taught. That's what you're taught. But the people need to, we all got to do the research. I mean, every, everything I tell you guys, you don't, don't take it for face value or, or Brian or anyone. Anyway. You got the beard, man. Yeah. I mean, got to do the research. All right. Uh, does anyone want to pray us out? Uh, Dave, you're standing. Would you care to dismiss us? Covered a lot. <laughs> well, it could be the listener, not the talker. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah?